gather round, gather round, gather round. Rest your weary feet and worry nots. You merely suffer disease in the naughty bits occasioned by too much venereal sports. So rub a poultice on your nether region and settle in for part two of our alchemy series featuring 2013's A Field in England, directed by Ben Wheatley. If you've listened to Solid Six, you know who I am. If you haven't, I'm Brady. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Brady. I've never had as many friends as I do in this podcast field. I am joined by Josh Griffith and Allison DeGrazio. How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. As a reminder, quick before we get into how the cast is doing, Hi. we shall consume all the ill fortune listeners are set to unleash. We shall chew up all the selfish scheming and ill intentions that listeners like you force upon people like us and bury it in the stomach of this podcast. So, as a reminder, please, please check in with us on our voicemail at solid6.net slash voicemail. Give us your best 17th century English accent. Email us at podcast at solid6.net. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, solid6.podcast on Instagram, solid6podcast and everything else. Rate and review on Apple Podcasts and any other podcast directory. Tell your friends. Have your friends have us on their show. I don't know. Fuck it. Do it all. We have a new Apple Podcast review. Hey. Nice. Yes. It's been a few months, but uh, got a new one this week. Unfurl Um, the lid to that motherfucker. (laughs) I want to have that pour out all over my face. Come on. (laughs) What do you say? Tell me what they said. Uh, this is from all caps. The one and only brain done mm-hmm. quote, a hidden gem. Five stars. Oh, description of review quote. This is a real podcast. Three actual friends with unique backgrounds, bringing their humor perspective and love to conversation around life. Yes. And our favorite life escape movies. Yes. They are consistently educating, inspiring, and making me laugh. They are doing the heavy lifting so you can get excited about checking out a new director or genre. Listening to them makes me feel like I have friends again. I'm watching more movies. I'm laughing out loud. Two thumbs up. That's awesome. awesome. I I think that's my buddy, Brandon. Awesome. And uh, if you're out there listening, Brandon, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. And I'm just, first of all, just I'm glad you're enjoying the show. That made my unique background tingle. Thank you, Brandon. I was excited when he talked about loving the conversation around life. And then I got kind of bummed out when he's like, oh, and they're talking about movies, too. Because I was just hoping this could turn into like a lifestyle. I feel like the first 45 minutes and I like I don't know if I'm certain our listeners are like fast forwarding every single time. But like it went from a 10 to 15 minute check in before getting into the show to now it's like a 45 minute therapy session between the three of us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) These are unprecedented times, so it requires unprecedented podcast formats. We're here to do unprecedented podcasting. We are breaking all the rules. <laughs> you better sit down and buckle up, bitches. We are unprecedenting these podcast rules. I'm going to share secrets I've never shared with anyone before. I might go to jail. My ex-boyfriend masturbated to movie characters of porcupines. Okay. <laughs> That's a recall from last episode. Yes, part one of our alchemy series. Allison talked about masturbating to porcupine porcupine character in Nightbreed. Nightbreed! All right, y'all. Enough about the preamble. I want to know how all y'all are doing. So I'm the big birthday boy. I had a birthday last week. And I got to celebrate that a little bit. It was a lot of fun. And also we got to go out of town. We haven't taken a vacation in a really long time. Mm. And we were... Definitely overdue. Oh, yeah. 
for a break. So we went out to the beautiful Oregon coast. Uh, for those listeners that are not in Oregon, Oregon's really pretty. Like it's real pretty out here. Yeah. It is. And the coast, we had a couple of days of nice weather and a couple of days of gloomy weather. Pacific Northwest weather. Classic Pacific Northwest weather. Watched a couple movies this week. Some, we had uh, two winners and one stinker. Yeah. Um, I'll start with the stinker. It was called Solar Babies and it's from 1986. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about Solar Babies is that it kind of mirrors the failure formula of Johnny Mnemonic in that you had a major studio, in this case, MGM, and you had a major production company, which is what, like Brooks Film, Mel Brooks's film yeah. company. Yeah. And they had a script. They liked the project. They threw millions of dollars in it. They got not A-list, but like up-and-coming movie stars, young movie stars to all be in this it thing. Like, it was like basically half the cast of Lost Boys. Was in this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and Jason Patrick and what's that girl's name? Anyway, the point is, is that uh, they handed the whole production over to an amateur director. He never directed the movie before. He was a choreographer. And I think that making that jump, he actually did a pretty good job. But overall, the movie basically kind of sucked. It, yeah. it was supposed to be like the blockbuster for that year, wasn't right. it? Major effort behind it. A major now, letdown. Now, based on <laughs> now, based on the name and the year it came out, I'm assuming this is like a Goonies cash grab, like children well running around with a. I described it as Breakfast Club Beyond Thunderdome. Ah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. With a dash of Star Wars. Got it. Okay. There's a dystopian future where there's no, the water is controlled and there are wars going on and they send all the youths to these detention centers where they all have to play this like weird form of like lacrosse on roller skates. Mm. And um, this is a roller skate heavy movie. Yes. It, yeah. There's, yeah. There was a, there was a time where I wasn't sure that the roller skates ever came off, but they do. Uh, and then they find this like magical orb that is going to bring peace to this hellscape. Mm-hmm. And like the sets are fucking awesome. Yeah, the sets are dope. Yeah, like to me they were. Uh, I keep I keep uh, likening it to Hook. It, they, like they were really detailed and intricate, and they looked fun, and they looked lived in, and it, they, they were awesome. They were super creative, and then they had just like shit storyline running through it. Yeah. Oh. Garbage story, sort of like this magical element, almost like, you know, the force in Star Wars where there's like this sphere that's got like childlike energy and it's going to like, but it can do these magical things <laughs> and it can like suddenly turn into space dust and then surround the kids and they all have like friendly circle where the energy transfers between all of them. Magic pixie dream orb. <laughs> so in, when I started watching these scenes, I'm thinking, wait a minute, is this one of those secretly Christian movies. You know what I'm <laughs> talking about? Kind of like, like Narnia or like yeah. Life of Pi, perhaps, where yeah. it's like it's uh, naked evangelism won't work on the modern youth. P.O.D. Uh, so you got a golden compass. Yeah. yeah. Golden compass? Yeah. So you got to sneak it in there. Jars mm-hmm. of clay. Anyway, Solar Babies wasn't that great. I did watch, uh, other than Solar Babies, I did watch two good movies. One of those great movies that we watched was just last night. And I remember seeing the trailers thinking that that could be really funny. But then the pandemic hit and it kind of went away and I never picked it up again. But it's on Netflix now. So I strongly, strongly recommend to everyone that you need to go watch Bad Trip. Yes. Mm -hmm. Have you seen it? No. Eric Andre's conceptual road trip comedy movie that's made out of candid camera moments. Mm-hmm. So they have set pieces that are set up to happen and they have like random people in the vicinity 
that are somehow involved, whether they know it or not. A bunch of people are on the sidewalk, and all of a sudden a car comes by and just like crashes into a bunch of cars and flips over. And then Eric Andre and little Ray Howard Howry, are like crawling out of the doors all bloodied, and they have to see how the people are going to respond to him. Or Tiffany Haddish grabs Eric Andre by the collar and is hanging him off of a building, <laughs> and someone hands this like random lady a megaphone to like talk her talk her down from killing him. <laughs> I'm not selling it very well. It's fucking hilarious. It's great. Like it's, so, it's it sounds like they're sketches that have a narrative that are kind of pieced together. Exactly. From sketch exactly. To sketch. Okay. Yeah. It's so. a. It's kind of like a. Jackass meets um uh what's that uh John Cusack movie the sure thing or something like that I don't know mm. so there's like a road trip movie where John Cusack is going to go track down this girl that he's in love with right mm-hmm. that's the basic plot of the movie but the what makes it fun is all the Eric Andre candid camera moments where and I don't even know how they pull this off because on the one hand, it's like they're obviously using real locations. Like it's a real zoo. It's a real bar. Yeah. It's a real business. And these are people that like work there. And Eric Andre is behind the counter making you a, a terrible smoothie with his hands, like grabbing the, <laughs> like grabbing the <laughs> glopping fruit out of a bucket with your hand mm-hmm. to make it into the smoothie. And like the people across the counter are correcting him like, no, you can't make it like that. And then the girl of his dreams like walks through the door and has a conversation and he like completely tunes out of all the people <laughs> that he's supposed to be like working for. And they're just like staring at him like a gape, like what what the what what the fuck? Yeah. And he has this magical moment with this beautiful woman, and then he's like like daydreaming and he just like sticks his hand in a blender and like blood flies everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the the candid the candid uh camera aspect was really great because you got to see so many people with no knowledge of what was happening respond really positively. Like it was a, it's a, it's a fucked up movie in terms of like the humor. It's a garbage humor kind of movie, but it's secretly wholesome because all the people that get involved are usually have like the best intents and like, they're just trying to help people. It's yeah. Like, oh, this guy's naked. Let me give him my shirt. It's, yeah. Like every, everyone that I'm, I'm certain that they did the pranks multiple times to get the best results for whomever they were doing it for. But the, the, largely the unassuming audience were truly wanting to do their very, very best to like be there and help the people. So they were very like altruistic and, and really, really concerned. And mm-hmm. it was nice to see because like Josh and I were kind of drunk. We were watching this and, and, and I was just like, this is like really nice. Like we always watch all this negative stuff. And we hear all this negative stuff in the news, but like everyone in this movie having this like terrifying prank played on them was just like truly wanted to help them out. And it was yeah. like really, it was super refreshing. Yeah, it was great. It was a surprise. Only twice did like people respond negatively, <laughs> which was also really funny. Uh, so not to give anything away, but basically Eric Andre and Little Ray Howard get chased out of a barbershop by the barber <laughs> brandishing a knife, like <laughs> in a like serious manner. <laughs> but other than that. So there's the the concern of like people flipping out on Eric Andre, but there's also the inverse where sometimes his stunts are a little mean spirited. Yeah. Yeah. Is he mean spirited in this? No. Okay. I I would say no. And that's one of the reasons why I was worried about this movie is because, like, Eric Andre, because of his style of comedy, like, I don't really trust him. And I don't trust him to (laughs) take take me to a place that I want to go necessarily. Yeah. But this movie was not like that. No, they were all, they were all, all the pranks that were done, they were all done on himself. The scene in the zoo, like, had I been witnessing that, I would have some trauma. <laughs> like if I thought that was real, there's a whole gorilla situation. I will be, <laughs> I will be watching this. Um, I'm a big Eric Andre fan. I've Two watched thumbs up. Multiple seasons of his show. 
in a past life, I used to be a lot more like Eric Andre. Um, so um, watching it with my wife watching a show with my wife it's like oh yeah I'm glad those days are over (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah I relate I relate to his his chaos energy very much so I'd say of like the more contemporary stuff he's doing the the um, recurring rap warrior ninja uh, segment on his show is incredible have you heard of this Mm -mm. so the rap warrior ninja he has different rappers uh, come on and they try to rap as they go across like a, an American ninja <laughs> set and he'll like tase them and like have, you know, like little foam hammers come and hit them and <laughs> knock them off. And, you know, Chris goes involved and that doesn't surprise me. One yeah. Day. So yes. that's all, you know, cause like a lot of the lap, a lot of rappers, you know, they're very braggadocious. They're like, it's yes. all about like machismo. And so like putting them in these really emasculating situations. <laughs> Where he's like, rap, rap for me, rap, go, keep rapping as he's tasing them. And <laughs> it's so much fun. Oh, I love, I absolutely love that man. Yeah. I, I think, I think he's my favorite comedian right now. Yeah, he's, he's great. Although for me personally, uh, I can only deal with him in small doses because he runs so quickly to the button pushing that it, it makes, I feel nothing but empathy for the people that he's torturing. <laughs> it, for me, it's his long fingernails. Seriously? He has long fingernails? Yeah, he has really long fingernails and I can't handle it. I did not notice that. Yeah, I don't really look at people's hands when they talk. I as as I think we've talked about this in other episodes that one of the major things that I look at in an attractive man is their hands. And, yes, that's um, true. You have brought this yeah, up. Yeah, there's, there's something about hands um, where I'm just like, you can have, you can have the face of a god, but if you, if you have like the wrong kind Nimble of hands, fingers. I can't <laughs> nimble. Get out! here with those <laughs> fucking gross yeah but like so <laughs> doesn't have the right hands well, i'm excited to watch this yeah you should check it out how about you allison how are you doing i'm good i'm good we got back from our little min min vacation the place that we stayed at was like adorable but it was, more it was so- like straight out of instagram it was awesome yeah it- like and I, I, I could i could roll my eyes but because i was there it was amazing <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, it was super kitschy. So it was like a tiny cottage built in like probably the 1930s or 40s. That mm-hmm. uh, I mean, everything in there was vintage and then like overdone a thousand times. So there was a wall of like vintage knife holders and a wall of vintage um, snow globes, snow globes, and a wall of vintage like like resin fruits and a wall of like um, wooden placards that said stupid things on it. It was cute as a bug. It was great. It was great, and it was like and it had a hot tub. Yes, which was the main reason, but also it just happened to fit our aesthetic of like no corner is left without some kind of vintage memorabilia yeah. on it. So it was it was it was awesome. There were like old college yearbooks in there that from like the nineteen. There was one from nineteen thirty nine. Oh, really? That I was looking through. Um, but then there was another one that we were like flipping through. I don't know. It was great. Uh, With the explosion of Airbnb and Verbo and stuff like that, it's. It's such a crapshoot nowadays where you can have stuff like that. Yeah. Um, which clearly you researched. But there's also ones that I've done in a fit of like, fuck it, I need to get out of the city now or else I'm going to do something I regret. 100%. And I just find somewhere and it's like stains everywhere and, mm-hmm. you know, the dryer and the washer are broken. Well, and the one of the last like ones we went to. Blood. Yeah, one of the last ones we went to was like creepy as fuck. Yeah, we and bo- not in a we, not in a fun way. We both had the spontaneous feeling that we were being watched. <laughs> like, and I, I like we like I'm I'm laying in bed, like pretending to be asleep, staring at the ceiling. 
also kind of like clocking the rest of the room, thinking about like, all right, what the fuck am I? Why am I feeling this way? And <laughs> yeah. then, I, and then at one point, I got up just for the hell of it, and I just had to check on something. I just had to like look in the closet or you whatever. In the closet, yeah. And then at that point, the cat's out of the bag. She's like, "We're talking about it now." It's like we both feel like we're being watched. And and we, we were had like, no indication that we were wow. being watched. We just felt it. And we yeah. didn't. We didn't talk about it either. Like I felt it. Mm-hmm. We neither of us said anything about it until Josh randomly got up, and Josh is like, "Please take this the right way." But if the cats are afraid, I'm afraid. If the cats are fine, but I'm afraid, then I know that I'm just being weird. Josh is that litmus test for me. So if if Josh is anxious and I'm anxious, I'm extra anxious. Yeah. But if I'm anxious and Josh is okay, it's fine. Yeah. I'm just overreacting. Mm-hmm. But the fact that independently, right. he just like, he got up. And, uh, so I was just like, I was like, no, it's fucked up. <laughs> yeah, it was a strange place. And or I mean, like I have uh, mixed feelings about Airbnb and generally, particularly yeah. like in the urban environment because of the rental market and the homing market, whatever. But this place that we went to <laughs> on the coast was, this was like a... So this was like someone's guest house. Yeah, it was like this... It was like a tiny resort curated to our specific interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I loved it. That's awesome. Oh, this time? Yeah. Yes, this yes. one, this last one. Yeah. No, cool. it was amazing. It was fucking perfect. Uh, so we just got back today. I'm so excited to see my little bean cats. Uh, I immediately, like, I wasn't even in the house for like 15 minutes. Like, I like went to the bathroom and I was like, well, I better go to the wet spot. Um, and like, imme- which is the fish <laughs> store. Aquarium. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a, it's a, we, don't, it's, we don't have like a greasy stain in the carpet. Yeah, I was going to say, this isn't a dive stripper bar in Portland. Uh, the wet spot is the wet spot is the name of the local premium aquarium store here in Portland. Would you really call it premium? It, no, it is. Okay, it is. It's you know what? It's like okay. So I was I was going to different aquarium stores here. Mm-hmm. I gotta say, despite my feelings on the wet spot from time to time about their very hey, stringent customers, this, this customer is a place service. of honesty. So just listen. Okay, so do, just, I, I, do we have like a wet spot sponsorship deal? And well, I'm gonna no, be tagging them in the episode. Ooh, so. Okay, great, fantastic. So they really. I was trying to go to other aquarium stores because I was just like tired of waiting. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, it's like, it's just worth it to wait. Like, you literally have to wait because they won't allow a lot of people in the store. Yeah, yeah. But it's just like, there's just so much more knowledge. And yeah. like, like I know that my questions are going to be answered well. Mm-hmm. And like, they definitely. Have a- <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. That made my back <laughs> tingle. Are you serious with that? <laughs> Your back tingled. My spine collapsed from shame for Josh. I was just like crumpled. So anyway, so it, it takes time to manage all the concerns of every buoy and every gill. <laughs> this fucking guy. <laughs> well, we've been together for. Might as well, just delete this episode while we're ahead. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I like I like hit my favorite spot and then like came and cuddled both my sweet little cat beans. Um, and then both tanks got new friends. Yes, but then. Josh said we watched a couple of movies. We also watched Solar Babies, which was a total train wreck. Bad Trip, which was awesome. But then uh, we watched Night of the Creeps. Yes. Yay! Uh, 1986, uh, which was written and directed by Fred Decker. Yeah. Which cool. which is kind of cool and kind of sad, too. You think so? Well, yeah, because Fred Decker, like, obviously with Night of the Creeps, like, first of all, I, this is the first time I've ever seen it. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know why I never 
crossed paths Same. with his movies before. I've, but... see, I've seen the cover a thousand times and was like, eh. It, it, it was fantastic. Like, it was so much fun uh, from start to finish. I loved it. You remember how I said a few episodes ago, or mm-hmm. maybe it was like a month or two ago, when you brought up RoboCop 3, and I was like, that's so surprising to me. You're having yeah. the inverse. Oh, I know. I know. I know. And, and that's, because, like, that's, that's, that's why I'm saying it's sad. <laughs> but he also did Monster Squad. Monster Squad is just, it's a classic. That's true. That's true. But it is a classic. I, I, I feel like knowing now, like how good the guy who directed RoboCop 3 could have been. Exactly. It really makes me think that the studio must have been like an oppressive influence I, it, it would have, I mean, it would, I think that you're, I think that you're, when we talked about this last time, you were saying that, you know, they, they wanted to make RoboCop such a commercial success with the toys and the cartoons and all that stuff. Like yeah. that it probably trying to direct and write that movie was so oppressive. Cause I think had he just had his own reign, if it was anything like night of the creeps would have been fucking awesome. Yes. Um, particularly with a with screenplay by Frank Miller, like, it could have, yeah. it had, it had some stuff. It had, it had meat on the bones and then it got, bleached out by probably uh, committees yeah right yeah. like some unseen committee somewhere we'll have to research you know what let's do <clears throat> let's do a series on whitewash films let's do Robocop 3 oh boy and like what give me another what? one give me another one uh uh any Star Wars movie. Okay, thank you. Other than the original trilogy. No, 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 no. So the prequels that came out, the original pre- prequels? Well, mm-hmm. that's still George, like George Lucas's vanity projects. Like, I would say the, the Disney and Star Wars. And they were awful. So whatever. All right. But, <laughs> 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 but, you know, if we do the, anyway, so we should, we should get in to see like how, we, how the production companies or whatever yeah, yeah, like, yeah. got in the way. Whatever. Anyway. So, Night of the Creeps, written, directed by Frank Decker, uh, basically, they're slug alien parasites that are ejected from another planet because they're causing too much of a ruckus. Um, fall to Earth and they take over. Uh, well, they take over like the most handsome 1950s frat boy, who is put into like cryogenics and then is thawed out as a as a prank at a frat house. And then his like ear slugs escape uh-huh. and start to infiltrate all the frat houses. And it's wonderful. This movie. Uh, what I like about this movie is it has like a little bit of everything. It's mm-hmm. a it's like a, a viral like thing type movie. Yes, it's a zombie movie. Yes, it's a slasher movie. A little bit, but yes, uh, it and it's like a hormonal like college like comedy thing. Yes, also yes, it's just it's a it's a really um, it is a fun mix of various genres and a story that never seems to fall off the rails. Yeah, yeah, but it also has Tom Atkins in it. And Tom Atkins' character is amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Dirk from VHS doesn't realize that I'm in a secret battle with him, but I have to give him props because I think that's where we got the recommendation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, off Twitter. Yeah. So, we, yeah, you're reading off Twitter. And that's, how we, that's how we watched it. But it was just like... It was fucking, great. <laughs> fucking kettle corn popcorn, bitch. Like, you can't stop once you open that bag. You just keep... <laughs> fucking going anyway that's how i am brady how are you wait before (laughs) you guys can't see it but she's using a lot of sassy finger gestures (laughs) sparkling rosé here i was i was ready to go keep going with night of the creeps but i'll i'll pick up no no all right let's keep going all right so i i wanted to see something a little bit on the shitty side just to kind of cleanse the old palettes and i watched uh, cthulhu mansion from 1992 from the notorious juan mccare simone juan director who did a 
slasher classic from 82 pieces and also did a film featured on Solid 6, Slugs. Slugs was so good. If I recall correctly, you like Slugs a lot because the kills and the special effects. Slugs was such a sleeper, amazing movie. And I'd have to say, yes, if, if we were... Let me just put it this way. If I were to do a double feature in the future, mm-hmm. Slugs and Night of the Creeps would be an excellent, yeah. Oh, yeah. excellent pairing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I uh, I have to agree. I think that Slugs was a lot of fun. It was one of those like Amazon recommended kind of things that was mm-hmm. just there. We had zero expectations for it and were very pleasantly surprised because of the... Uh, the brazen nature of the deaths of the characters. Ah, and so also good. like the weirdo, um, like guys from the office, like getting together to like sort it all out at the end. I thought oh, like, yeah. the, like the, it's a diehard for office guys. <laughs> <laughs> so it was great. I, I really liked slugs and I've heard nothing but good things about pieces. Yeah. So pieces had some really strange mother child dynamics. Mm. Uh, you know, the killer grows up to be a fucked up killer because of the way his mom treated him. Okay. Uh-huh. And that was handled really well. The kills were really good. Go see the original trailer. It's really funny how much they're like, you know, you don't need to be in Texas to have a chainsaw massacre. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think the tagline is, it is what you think it is. I, I think that's literally the trailer. Oh, wow. Okay. It is what, it, what you think it is. I, I am <laughs> looking at that. You, you don't have to go to Texas to have a chainsaw massacre. Yeah, yeah. I am seeing that. Yeah, so it, it's probably got the same kind of sense of humor as Slugs, it sounds like. Well, Cthulhu Mansion has none of that. Oh, um, oh no. This was at the tail end of his, his career um, in film. I think this was, I don't know if this was a straight to VHS, but it had that flavor. It had a little bit of that. Remember how we were talking last week about Stuart Gordon and his crossover with like Castle Freak yeah. and kind of that straight to video or like that home movie yeah. HBO thing? Yeah. So imagine that, but like five times. Less production. Oh. Yeah. So right. it's like a C grade episode of Tales from the Crypt kind oh. of situation. So, which I'm like kind of into seeing. Uh, it's, let me tell you what, if you're working out and doing laundry, um, <laughs> really good background, <laughs> background noise. <laughs> not really, uh, not really good to sit down to. So, I, yeah, I, I needed to see this as a curiosity. Um, Vinegar Syndrome just put out a Blu ray of, of it last month. Really? Um, Vinegar Syndrome. Yeah. And, you know, there's a feature link documentary about his career. Um, there's a interview with a special effects artist. There's some okay special effects, but there's so few and far between that I would say this is this is a bit of a snooze fest. Gotcha. Okay. Starring William Shatner's daughter. <laughs> really? That's, that's what it says. It doesn't even list her name. <laughs> <laughs> it said it that's said, her IMDb credit. <laughs> It said Melanie Shatner, and I just had to find out if that was the spawn of the Shat. <sighs> you may say that he Shat. No, I'm just kidding. I was. I'm happy that you went there before I did. Abort. <laughs> yeah. But uh, on a better note, I have started the um, HBO miniseries Q into the storm. Hell yeah. Oh man! I've, so I only watched the first episode. Josh has seen the first two. Yeah, so this is a new miniseries on HBO that started last week. They're putting out, I believe, two episodes every Sunday. So they put out two just recently, um, and then they're going to be putting out two after this this episode comes out. So the series should be done. Yeah, and this is 
basically, for all intents and purposes, trying to find the origins of QAnon. Uh, there's a little bit of a setup about um, the machinations of how this came to be in regards to the different image boards. Machinations. Machinations. Brady's new favorite word. I was going to say another word. <laughs> the processes, the processes, the systems, and how, how it came to be. Like it, the 2chan, 4chan, 8chan stuff is interesting to some degree. Um, but I think it's really just a setup to show that, like, this thing that millions of people believe and have directly influenced not just our politics, but our family and friends' lives. Yep. It's fucked up families. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Is directly attributed to a father and a son who are trolls who are living in the Philippines and Japan. Right. And um, I think it, it's the right approach. I, I, when I say the right approach, I believe that instead of trying to censor and like say like, no, let's not, talk about this instead let's go the opposite way and say yo dude it's just this fucking asshole boomer troll and his son who's a sociopath right um that have created this and the more people who can actually understand where this is coming from the more they're gonna be like oh like i'm not gonna get whisked away by the cultist like throw 30 things out there that are random phrases and maybe one sticks and it's like see this q guy is on something right so i I think that um, I would recommend it if you like process, if you're expecting some sort of like mystery of where this thing is going. It's not that it's if you're looking for some adrenaline fueled action documentary, it's it's not going to be that it's more like let's maybe like peel back the process of what's happening here and yeah. try to understand instead of getting caught up in the hysteria of not just pro, but also anti. Right. Yeah. Can I just to back you up there a yeah. little bit? So you mentioned that the whole specific moment about, Oh, hey, he's thrown out 30 things. One of them sticks. That means that it's real and yada, yada, yada. Mm. I think that there's a counterpoint there where I think that there was kind of like an internal feed. And this is totally my opinion. I think there may have been an internal feedback loop where perhaps not Trump because he's about as smart as a meatloaf, but maybe someone in his cabinet recognized the potential. Yes, the potential and was starting to sort of tap into that. I'm, I'm thinking like a Stephen Miller type person because I think that some people in his cabinet would have the savvy and the knowledge of things that are happening to be able to tap in. Because like there, there are a few moments in the QAnon history where like Trump, for example, utters certain phrases that are specific to the QAnon movement. Mm -hmm. But Trump doesn't write his own speeches. He's reading off of the teleprompter. Yeah. It would not be difficult for someone in his inner circle who is sensitive and perhaps trying to feed that movement something because they're they're both benefiting from each other. Sensitive or savvy. I mean, if you look yeah. at it, like the equivalent in other, other spheres is like... Uh, uh, AOC doing a Twitch stream of Among Us, right? So it's like, hey, look at my look at my gaming rig, mm. you know. And she's clearly appealing to younger voters, yeah, right, yeah. And, and I that's what I, I so I've only seen the first episode, but that's what I found really. We I think we like not to think about how conniving politics can be in order to manipulate their voter base, and when watching some of the first up things, details that were happening in the first episode, especially how those cue drops were lining up with like major Trump speeches or Trump tweets where it was like, okay, I don't think it's Trump, but someone in the cabinet definitely under 
like what you're saying, Josh, definitely understands how to use and harness this as a mutually beneficial thing in order to kind of get these outlier bases who are uh, quote unquote patriot independent, you know, Americans to like come together to rally behind Trump, which is like, it's, it's so far, far, far in the back of the line of what I would have thought like people in a think tank were going like, how can we rally, you know, the, the Trader Joe (laughs) Republican, you know, like, no, exactly. Yes, that's true. However, there's also something here that we need to reconcile with is that this isn't going away anytime soon. And the part of the reason why this isn't going away anytime soon is that politicians still act like we live in some sort of utopian society mm-hmm. that they can't actually follow through on. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty fucking easy now to see, pull up some information from a couple of months ago where a politician says they're going to do something and, they, and they don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So regardless of whether the people are activated with some horseshit cult, you know, made up things like the reality of the situation is the systems are failing us. Yeah. Yeah. And the sooner like people who actually are altruistic and have good ethics, like harness this reality of the fact that people, even though they're dumb and like susceptible to conspiracies, they're smart enough to be uh, able to see disingenuous politicians for the most part. Like the sooner we're going to actually grapple with this, but like trying to shove it off and sweep it into the corner, this isn't going away. Right. No, yeah, no it's, right. it's not. Right. And another thing that's interesting to me about this whole QAnon, the, specifically the End of the Storm documentary that comes up, is the very linear and very direct through line from those old like garbage websites like Something Awful and Rotten.com into Anonymous and Gamergate yeah. and all these things. They, they pretty much flow from one thing to another. Yeah. It's just, you know, these little tributaries stringing out. But it's a very continuous line of either people or events connecting to each other that got us to QAnon. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think that people inside of Trump's administration, it goes that direction in the next few episodes that you haven't seen. Oh, okay. And then the fourth episode really goes more into a direction of like how easy it is to manipulate people in general. Mm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Using technology. And it's like we would... I'm just going to say this because... Yeah. But it's like it would we would be extremely naive to think that this wasn't happening to us also. It's not just oh, yeah, like totally. it's not like a, it's not just a QAnon Trump base. It's happening yeah. to everybody. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but like everything on your phone has been catered specifically for you to rile you up on all the things right. that get your right. get your feathers ruffled. So And the more open minded you are, the harder it is to target ads to you. So like yeah. it's they're incentivized with money to actually yeah. keep you locked in with yeah, yeah things that reinforce your ideas. So it's it's pervasive and it's just I think this is a really, really good documentary showing like not the flagship, but just like it's like showing like a disco party version of what we're all experiencing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The uh, patriotic disco party of what yes. we're all experiencing. Yeah, well, we, we all live in our own algorithmic echo bubbles, you know, mm-hmm. with our feedback loops and all that stuff. And I think that it can get away from us. Does the series go into anything with like Russia or China or anything like that? No. Like in terms of like psyops? No. No? Okay. Not yet. All right. Four, I've, so again, two more episodes left. So I've watched four of the six. But it really, the, the gist of this is that these movements that seem ambient and just ever present. It's like, no, you can trace the shit back to specific people and look at the characters of these people. They're fucking trolls. So why would you hang your hat and your family's hat and your future right. on trolls? 
that's, so that's going to be it for our conspiracy corner. Mm. Next, we're going on to our true crime corner, and then we'll corner. actually do the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Checklist down our stumbling on our. We shtick. just keep adding yeah. like descriptions to what the show is. Yeah. True crime, conspiracy. <laughs> cryptid mm-hmm. science minute <laughs> hauntings hey. history sorry google seo keyword search mm-hmm. Holy fucking shit, I could talk about Q for like two hours. Could you talk about Q for two hours? I think we did. No, we <laughs> talked about it for like 15 minutes. Come on. Yeah, we just we just went into like a dark place. I could have kept going. I uh, know. I know. All of us could. <laughs> we should probably get into the feature. Let's do it. So as a reminder to our listeners, we do a double feature based on a theme. This is part two of our alchemy series. And part two is about a field in England by Ben Wheatley. Whitehead! I know you're there! Do not concern yourself with bravery and I went here. Disofficient. You're my prisoner. I think I have worked out what God is punishing us for. <clears throat> Everything. England begins with a ragtag group of men, all seemingly defectors from an English Civil War battle happening somewhere in the distance. They immediately bond over their disaffectedness of the situation and set out on their path. You come to find out Whitehead, main character who is attached to his master, an unnamed alchemist, looking to arrest his rival for stealing rare documents. Whitehead, a nervous little fellow, gets dragged along with a band of men who are promised an alehouse as a destination by Cutler who turns out to be the right-hand man of O'Neill, the alchemist, to be arrested. Cutler leads the band of men to O'Neill, who coerces the band of men to help him find a buried treasure in an expansive field in England. (laughs) (laughs) O'Neill takes note that Whitehead appears to be different than the other man based on the way he speaks, the words he utters, and the simple fact that he refuses a psychedelic soup full of mushrooms. O'Neill hones in on this uniqueness and uses it to his advantage to torture and draw out whatever special power Whitehead appears to have in accelerating the revelation of the bounty's location. As the dig for the treasure commences, a feverish and psychedelic conflict plays out between light and dark forces, which push them along their journey of self-actualization. I think that pretty much sums up what happens in the movie. I mean, it's uh, not really what the movie's about. (laughs) 
It's, but <sighs> yeah, uh, one aspect I like about this movie is that it's a fairly grounded plot through about three quarters of it. Mm-hmm. And it's only until you get to about that last, like maybe third, three quarters of it that it actually starts to kind of spool really loose, even though there are clues and happenings in the previous parts to allude to what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't, it's actually stays pretty constant and pretty predictable and pretty linear up, up until the very end. Mm-hmm. Well, not yeah. the very end, close to the end. Close to the end. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm trying not to like blow my load. <laughs> yeah. How, do, yeah. Yeah. How do we feel about spoilers about this movie? Because yeah. I, I think that we, in order to really address this movie, we kind of have to talk about it in totality. There's only been one movie. We haven't been cool with spoilers, right? Yeah. Or- Orgasmo. Was it? Oh, you're right. Yeah, oh, no, I it was. No, you're totally right. What, what's the other one? We didn't. No, you're right. Sorry, I was thinking about Orgasmo. We, the other one. No, we didn't. We didn't give away the ending to Orgasmo. Um, I yes. think. No, I think we have to. Yeah. I, I just think, like, with any you guys, listen, listeners, fucking listen, listen. I don't even know how to like start my conversation or like where to pick up the rope of all the many topics that we can go on in this movie. Um, I am excited to talk about it. I think there was an enormous amount going on. We can start with the script of having like a script written in 17th century English. Right. Well, why don't we, why don't we start here? So I picked this movie. What did you expect? Cause we talked about expectations a bit in the last episode yeah. um, with the alchemist cookbook. What expectations do you have of this movie? And if you had any, did they meet or are they different than your expectations? I didn't have any expectations. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I I hadn't heard of this movie before. You know, Josh and I try and, and watch our films pretty close to when we're going to be recording. So the information is still really fresh with us. Me too. But I was expecting more flashing because because you kept talking about <laughs> how... I. <laughs> There's a warning at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, I, I kept I kept expecting more light and dark flashing uh, uh, between okay. the scenes because it has a seizure warning and you mm-hmm. were also talking about that too, where it's it, people who are susceptible to maybe visual cues for that kind of thing should avoid watching the movie. So I was expecting more like light, dark flashes, but it's, it's not quite that it's, it's this, it's this extremely fast flipping between two scenes or between two characters to mold them as closely as possible to create a hallucinogenic feeling. Right. And I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I, I came to this movie extremely cold. Like I had read about this movie in context to other movies. And like I had seen the trailer at one point and I had a, a basic idea what it was about. But um, like that was like all like, like water in the bridge. I basically had forgotten all about it. And uh, getting ready for to watch it, I just rolled up and just watched the movie. Mm-hmm. So it hit me like a thunderbolt. I mean, I'm just coming straight out of the gate. Like, I fucking loved it. Like, mm-hmm. it was it was a fantastic movie. You know what I felt after watching it is I disliked the Alchemist Cookbook more <laughs> <laughs> after watching this movie. Well, Allison didn't like uh, you didn't. I'm sorry, you didn't like the Alchemist Cookbook already. So. I didn't care for it. But okay. that, man, now I really hated it. <laughs> okay, interesting. What about this? Made you hate that movie more? If we're if we're going to be talking about like mysticism and kind of uh, like spooky occult folk horror mm-hmm. um, involving involving the environment. A field in England does such a much better job with incorporating the the environment with like long shots of the actual field and long shots of insects in the sky. Mixed with the musical score by Jim Williams creates 
attention, especially because we also know that these guys are doing hallucinogenics, much like in the Alchemist cookbook, how he's just drinking whatever he's drinking. There's something about how the director mixes everything together in a field in England where you're so much more engaged and you're, and you're concerned and you are um, anticipating more of what's going to be happening. Mm. Whereas in the Alchemist cookbook, I felt like I was watching a student project mm. on the same topic. It occurs to me now that both, uh, both movies, Alchemist cookbook and field in England, both have pretty minimal sets. Mm-hmm. Like one's a trailer more or less, and a lake nearby. Yep. And the other one is like a field and a hedgerow and, and like a tiny little camp. So like not much, but I feel like Ben Wheatley just did so much with a, an extremely minimal... They filmed it in 12 days. Mm. 12 fucking days. Yeah. It's bananas. I think that one of the main gems of this movie is the incredible dialogue, the, the script. Yes. The, uh, what's her name? Amy... Jump. Amy, Amy Jump. Jump, yeah. Yeah. Who's a occasional or no several four five times six times collaborator with Ben Whitley on different projects? Uh, the script that she came up with was amazing. We watched it without the subtitles, which is questionable. I feel like I could have caught more if I had subtitles on. Yeah, so I, I recommend it to Allison and Josh to turn on the subtitles because my first viewing experience of this was uh, about twenty minutes in. I realized that despite my stubborn attempts to be that guy that's like it's fucking english what i fucking speak the language bro i could not pick up some of the things they were saying because there was an intentional stylistic choice to to have a throwback there's there's it's also really snappy too yeah Yeah. there's there's idioms and sayings of the time that we just don't have reference for that don't mean the same as they do now it's muffled because there's a lot of men grabbing each other's throats there's a lot of talking under one's breath there's There's a lot of shouting in the background there's bombs the, and gunshots. And well, stuff. there's that. And then there's a lot of like yelling against the wind. So mm-hmm. it, it was, it's, it's difficult to understand if people have watched the witch and the dialogue in that, um, the, it's like the witch plus some garble. Yeah. I feel like the witch was easier to understand, Yeah, but still had that like old cadence and old English style. And this is like 17th century trying to be as uh, historical for the times as possible, but they did mess up a couple times. They yeah. they accidentally used some words that weren't quite in circulation yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that they were like, like listen, look, like yeah, fuck we're, art- we're artists, we're not historians. Yeah, like, exactly. we, did, we did our yeah. best. So. Yeah. We're in the approximation. We're going to give yeah. you a mood. Yeah. We're, we're in a mood here. Yeah. Um, like every single thing in this movie is intentional. To make a movie like this in 12 days shows that there is a crew of people who know what the fuck they're doing. Mm-hmm. In fact, this is the fourth movie that this crew worked on together. So they did Down Terrace together. They did Kill List. They did Sightseers. And now they did uh, Field in England. So the vast majority of these people had been working together for mm, three or four years. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah a number of them had worked in TV together. Yeah. So this is a testament of keeping smart people on the same team for a long period of time. Right. Because they can do more with less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what struck me with what you're saying, Allison, is that there was not a single line that seemed out of place. Or wasted. Yes. I actually preferred watching it without subtitles because I think the point is, because it's so surreal. Like we're talking, we're talking about a film that has comparisons to Eraserhead. And the film is so surreal that I think that's part of the ownership of being the viewer is that Mm -hmm. we're still trying to figure out 
in in our best way with all of our senses what's happening and the fact that maybe we don't get the dialect enough to understand certain parts of it plays into the story of the film. Um, and I think that that was actually an important aspect of that. Uh, respect to you because I decided to switch on subtitles because I could tell they were having such great banter that I wanted to... The be, banter was funny. Yeah, and I wanted to participate. Um, so when, when I would feel like I was connected to it and then all of a sudden I would lose that kind of spell that was cast over me because of the language... I was starting to get frustrated because I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I, I like where this is going. I'm, I feel like I'm part of this really sophisticated conversation that feels it's natural. It's not sophisticated, though. They're just well, like, they're talking about both. their dicks constantly. It's, right. <laughs> it's, it's all levels. But yeah. It's multiple levels. So when, I, so when I say sophisticated, I'm thinking about like having friends who are really good with words. In fact, friends who are rappers who have demonstrated to me the playfulness of words where you just kind of bullshit long enough that you kind of stumble upon these phrases. I mean, yeah. the two of you do it both. I mean, like almost all of my friends have this trait where they kind of, they play with words and they kind of, you know, treat language as kind of a fun moldable clay that they can kind of play with. And they, even they themselves are surprised with what they're coming up with. Uh-huh. And so that's what to me was sophisticated was like, I could see and hear how the screenwriters or the creators were playing with this dialogue of like, what if we had the fool? What if we had the soldier? What if we had the wise person? You know, mm-hmm. what if we had the manipulator? All these different archetypes. If we had them all just kind of in the same soup playing together in this conceit, how can we write this dialogue? So it's a bit of a writer's exercise, but it's not tedious. It's not cerebral. It's no. it's yeah. it's fun. It is fun. And, that, and that's the big thing is I, I think that just straight up okay, first of all, it's about dialogue. Straight out of the gate, watching this movie. Uh, the first scene is Whitehead basically hiding from his commander guy that's looking for him uh, on the other side of a hedgerow during a battle, mm-hmm. right? And the commander's like shouting at him, like, enough of this mummery. <laughs> and on the edge, like the very edge of my vocabulary memory, I'm like, fucking mummery, mummery. That's like, it's like theater, right? Like mummers, they're, they're, like, they're like players, right? So he's basically saying, yeah. enough of these theatrics, and I'm like, oh yeah. God, Josh, just hang on. Like, <laughs> like, you're in for a ride yeah, here, but yeah, like this is like straight out of the fucking gate. But yeah, the the dialogue, um, for what limited bits I caught, <laughs> was very sophisticated. It was multi leveled. There's both like the dialogue between the characters, and occasionally the writer, uh, Amy Jump, is basically throwing like these like sort of like meta lines at the audience, like through what the characters are saying. So, for example, there's that one line, something about like, you better watch what you're doing. Jesus is going to be here any minute, mm-hmm. right? Because in the context of the specific scene of the movie, they're basically acknowledging that they're all in danger and they could be dead in a second. But then that also plays into the other layer of the sort of ethereal environment that they have, may have drifted into. So what I'm saying is, yeah. is like the dialogue, despite the um, gallows humor and the dick and fart jokes, it does drift between full like, very fine Shakespearean prose from the Whitehead character all the way down to like just the most garbage filth that um, the Grenadier Jacob would say. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I had a similar experience with the commander because the part that he said was, um, your pretty parts are doomed, homunculus. And I was like, (laughs) I think I've heard the word homunculus. And so I had to look that up. (laughs) What what does homunculus mean? A very small human or humanoid creature. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I'm going to remember that one. <laughs> you monkey. 
Your pretty parts are doomed, homunculus. <laughs> and it's, it, it, oh, I think oh. it's the same conversation you said, where it's like within the first two minutes, I was like, well, oh, this oh, is going to oh, be my jam. Shit. Yeah, yeah. I just rolled with it. I was just like, I'm getting, I'm getting like 40% of what's happening, but it's enough where I'm like, it sounded like lyrics to me. Like it sounded like someone was singing yes. in like romantic yeah. song lyrics. And so it's it, like, I was just like, okay, like I'm interpreting poetry. Yes. And, uh, and I'm, and I'm, I'm understanding that these men are, um, think they're doing one thing, but looks like they're about to be poisoned and tricked into doing something else. Yeah. The moment the mushrooms came out, like it, I was waiting for it to become like a completely different movie because the dialogue was, multi-layered and complicated and sophisticated while also being very coarse. I was able to follow most of it, but a lot of what was happening in the movie more or less made sense and sort of like the visual mechanics of it, 100%. almost like a, like a Looney Tunes cartoon where what was happening on screen seemed to make enough sense visually through the characters where the dialogue was basically just adding an additional layer. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, it didn't lose me. So Allison used the word poetry and I, the way I, I kind of picked up on that when I watched it was clearly Whitehead was kind of the the prissy guy of the group. Based well, he on, also, well, he had the nicest teeth. He had the yeah, nicest clothes. Exactly. He had recently learned lace making. Exactly. <laughs> they so, say I'm quite good. <laughs> so Allison's talking about his visual appearance, and I'll also add that like that that uh, actor Reese Shearsmith does such a good job oh of just God. being this like people pleaser. Like I'm so sorry that I even exist. You know, what am I even doing here? I shouldn't be here. I just want to, you know, make everyone okay. Um, just the, the acting in this from everyone involved is part of the poetry where if you don't understand what they're saying, it's also their acting of just seeing their body language and the way everyone's kind of... They're all great. We've yeah. had this conversation before and it had to do about space truckers mm-hmm. because we were talking about British actors or English actors. Yeah. And oh, how... Yeah how just hands down their ability they're overpowered are they're in Jesus. they're incredible at their talent and they're incredible yeah. at this gift and uh who was it in space truckers Terrence stamp who, i'm sorry isn't it terrence stamp terrence stamp? charles dance whoa charles what who was i thinking of? i don't know stamp is the guy from the limey and also from oh, superman I'm 2 <laughs> yeah anyway there was a superman 3 yeah Anyway, yeah. So it's Charles Dance. Charles Dance. Charles Dance. Charles Dance. Yeah, so we were we were speaking about his versatility as an actor. And but we you know, we went into the fact that just like English actors just blow Yeah, they're whole blow people out whole of the, the water. They're amazing. The whole theater system just like churns out great actors. Yes. Even if they like never make it like to like the quote unquote big leagues, like they're still incredible actors. Yeah, we I mean it's like we've got so we've got Peter uh, Fernando, Richard Glover. Who was also Peter Fernando was also in High Rise. Oh, was he? Yeah, he gets <laughs> killed by a mob of angry people. Outstanding. <laughs> we have Ryan Pope, Reese Shearsmith, and uh, Michael Smiley, and they're incredible. Michael Smiley is Irish, correct? He plays the Irish. Right? Yeah, I don't know if he is Irish. Though. Let me let me double check. I think he might be I- Irish or. I do ah! to, to double back on what Brady was saying. I think that Reese Shearsmith's performance was fantastic. He, I think was, that he was outstanding. He is kind of like this um, apologist, like Smithers type, like worm man. That's in a fish out of water situation where he doesn't want to be in this battlefield. He can't stand that he's doing it, and he sort of has to make the best of what he's doing. Yeah, his performance as as you see transforms through 
the movie because of mm, the, like magical stuff that happens. I thought he did a great job. Oh like, yeah. And actually all of the guys did a great job. Um, who ended up being like my secret favorite was uh, Richard Glover who plays friend. Who's kind <laughs> oh, of the simpleton. God. Friend, friend has some of the best lines. He has the best lines. Yeah, truly, truly. He's got the most simple, but the most endearing and like has the best timing for saying these things. Like I, I found everything that came out of his mouth just absolutely hilarious. Because he doesn't feel like the hurry of the battle or the conflict. He's like, like three steps behind everything. Yes. Where he's just kind of like, going with it. And yeah. therefore, he's also often the wisest person. I agree. I agree. He's supposed to be like, everyone's like, oh, he's a simpleton. Oh, he's the idiot. But it's like, well, actually, I actually think that everything he says is like really heartfelt and wise. But then he's dumb when he says at the very end, you two are peas in a pod and I'm here to pick up the scraps of your affection and I'll show you. And then he runs out <laughs> and dies because he was jealous of these two other guys budding friendship over the last 24 hours. And, and after like the big sort of twist at the end, I thought for a second, for a second there, because of people like not being who they say they are kind of situation there at the end, I mm-hmm. thought for a second that perhaps there was a chance that friend was actually the unseen master same. in disguise. Same. But that obviously oh, wow. isn't where it went mm-hmm. because of the things that you just described. But after the whole situation with O'Neill revealing himself to sort of mastermind the situation, I thought, okay, maybe there's another turn, another layer, but it didn't go that way. Let's go back to like the mechanics because I think we're getting too far ahead with yeah, like, yeah. the language. Yeah, and we need to explain but things. The mechanics are so they're in this battle. They all leave the battle and uh, they cook a meal. After Cut- some negotiation as to who's doing what for yes, whom. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. They're making a meal for Cutler takes mushrooms and without letting anybody know, adds mushrooms to their soup and insists that the men eat the soup. Cutler does not eat it. Whitehead does not eat it because he's on a, a spiritual fast. Uh, so now we have Friend and Jacob who are starting to feel these effects, which Cutler is hoping to use in order to get them to do this polling project. So he introduces them to this talisman or this kind of totem, totem pole. pole. Yeah, like carved, like rune pole. Yes. Like wood, like very um, conspicuous wooden pole yes. out of the middle of this field out of nowhere. Now we also, I don't know if you guys noticed, uh, so... Much later in the movie, Whitehead is in a circle of mushrooms. A circle Mm -hmm. of mushrooms is a fairy circle. Yeah. A fairy circle is a very dangerous place to be. So if we go back to the beginning of the film when they're pulling and they're pulling and they're pulling and they're pulling and they don't know what they're fighting against. And you never really see it. And you never really see. They're pulling O'Neill out of the fairy circle. Mm -hmm. So that's... That's so, cir- so a circle being like another dimension or a, so, some sort of yeah. portal. Yeah. Like a magical, yes, exactly. magical door. Exactly. Yeah. So the fairies, uh, there's a there's a whole lore that if you get, if you accidentally step inside of a fairy circle, which is usually a circle of mushrooms, the fairies will make you dance and and you dance and you dance, but what feels like five minutes can actually be like ten plus years. And you need someone to pull you out in order to save you. 
So I had a different impression from like the magical perspective uh-huh. <laughs> because that's <laughs> kind of what this movie is all about. What I was really kind of connecting to was not so much things in this movie, but thinking back to a previous film of Son of the White Mare, where the characters use a rope to lower and re- pull their hero back out of the bowels of hell. Oh, and I yeah. thought, for example, for in order for... Whitehead, in order to fulfill his mission, he basically had to pull O'Neill out of hell. And so the endless pulling, they were actually producing O'Neill um, out of the fairy circle from like the underworld. Mm-hmm. And that's yep. the reason why no, you never, exactly. that's why you never really see him until all of a sudden he's there. No, exactly. Yes. And they're, and they're pulling, but they're also getting, something is pulling back. It's the spirits, the fairies are pulling back, pulling them in, but they end up pulling him out of the circle, yeah, this other then, dimension, this other thing. And then yeah. Whitehead says something. So like basically the, the fairies or whatever are winning. They're pulling them in into the circle then Whitehead says something and they just drop the rope and then O'Neill appears. Yes. What we're finding out is that Whitehead is the more powerful of the two alchemists. And Whitehead is a Whitehead it is he is an apprentice. He has been apprenticing under this master, but he has a strength that maybe the master has been dampening for a long time. And in this trance that they're now getting in with like overexertion and pulling and being in a rhythm, which is a way that you can get yourself into a trance, mm-hmm. says something magical, which produces O'Neill. I see. Or, or basically finishes the process of pulling him out of so, the, pulling him out of oblivion. So basically, he recruited the other men of the group into form sort of a, a magical syzygy in order to affect the spell on O'Neill to remove him from the fairy circle. Yeah. Okay. Which I would assume implies the fact that O'Neill had attempted to use these mag- this magic uh, to find the buried treasure unto himself, but because he didn't have certain characteristics or he wasn't pure. He got lost along the way. Yes. And we also find this where he talks about Whitehead's ability for divination, s- divination and scrying. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a theory that once O'Neill and Whitehead meet each other, Whitehead was tasked with arresting O'Neill because O'Neill stole sacred papers from his alchemist master. And if you remember from our previous episode, sometimes the the knowledge base of alchemy is based only it is a very it's a very single link between master and student. Yes. So these papers are like worth their weight in gold. Yes. So to speak. Yeah. O'Neill stole these papers. Whitehead was tasked with arresting O'Neill and getting the papers back to his master. Very sheepishly, he is telling O'Neill that he is under arrest and he needs to be taken back and given the papers. And O'Neill is like okay, listen, bitch, yeah. this is not how this is going. You are you are specifically mastered in divination. I am not. I need your power in order to find this treasure, but you're not getting these favors back. You're not in control. I suspected that Cutler was deployed from the very beginning in order to manufacture the situation between yes. Whitehead and his commander in yes. order to relieve him of that to bring him to O'Neill. Yes. yes. There's also the sort of, uh, you know, like usual suspects, other layer. <laughs> or, sorry, sorry, Brady. I'm so sorry. I'm editing that shit out. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. No, do what not. you gotta do. Or not. But that Whitehead, of course, was allowing all of this because of his sort of suppressed superpowers or whatever. So it, that... And that he was letting Cutler take him to O'Neill. No, I that doesn't really add up to how I interpret the movie because Whitehead is timid throughout the entire movie. He doesn't really understand what he has. Um, he starts with 
bragging a bit to friends about, you know, his study under his master about divination and astrology, mm-hmm. you know, and friend makes the quip of like, oh, I, I don't get paid to do that, which was about looking up at the stars. Yeah. Um, and makes, so makes a comment about his soft hands. Yeah, 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 exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and he's just, he's just trying to be, he's sincere. He's just, yeah. he's completely um, without malice. But Whitehead goes from kind of trying to brag to him to this battle with an alchemist that he doesn't even know he's in a fucking battle. Mm. And and O'Neill is drawing this out of him, which leads to these runestones coming out of his mouth. And he's like, well, what are these? He's like, I don't oh, know yeah. what the fuck they are. So, that, was an, that was a great scene, by the way. Was, yeah, so I... So go, the, fact that, the fact that Whitehead was clueless and surprised by the whole situation all the way up until he took mushrooms, to me demonstrates that he was not really aware of his own power. So the idea at the very beginning of him somehow manufacturing anything is not in the ballpark of how I interpret it. Well, he also says he's like, at one point when he's very first feeling everything and he's having these visuals, he goes, I am my own master. As as an epiphany. Yes. Like that's a new yes. thing for him. Mm-hmm. But yeah. just to challenge both of you guys just a little bit, it seems that I don't remember him taking the mushroom stuff. I do remember O'Neill giving him whiskey and then, or not whiskey, wine and then once he has the wine in him, then he barfs up the rune stones out of his stomach because he was corrupted. Mm-hmm. And then he becomes like way more powerful. Yeah. So my interpretation of that situation was he was on this spiritual fast. My interpretation is that whomever the master was or is mm-hmm. inserted the runes into Whitehead to suppress mm-hmm. his power. Okay. Because the master understood and saw that Whitehead was an incredibly powerful alchemist and practitioner. So does O'Neill. And O'Neill, in order to find this treasure, needs to take the spell off of Whitehead. So because he knows that divination... Because he needs him at full strength. Yes, because he knows that divination is the strength of Whitehead. What I think is happening inside the tent when we hear Whitehead being tortured is I think he's being forced to look into the scrying mirror. Oh. And I think he's and being... What, what would that do, though? Well, so a scrying mirror, which I actually have, and I, I should have brought it out. The fuck? I have a scrying mirror. <laughs> Can my house... <laughs> <laughs> there is a scrying mirror in this house. Uh, a, scrying mirror is a, a scrying mirror is a piece of glass that has a black... It's either painted black uh, on one side or has black felt on one side. So when you look into it, it looks like you're looking into a pool of water, black mm. water. Mm. And it allows your subconscious to... Um, insight visuals or hallucinations and so if and it's a it's a very powerful form of divination and so if whitehead is the diviner and he's being forced to look in to this scrying mirror and then also because he's on this fast he's not consuming anything ever but now he's being forced heavily against his will to consume wine which causes him to vomit and break the spell which causes him to vomit the runes right so kind of become this like li- literally like those guys, the div- diviners that have like the little like brass wands that like flex like my, when they're looking for my water. My grandpa used to do that. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. A uh, water diviner? Yeah. He yeah. Witching for water, they called it. Witching for water? Yeah, that's so, right. So that's my grandpa, awesome. who was a dairy farmer on my dad's side, uh, he, you know, there's no, there's no real way to find water. You just got to dig for it. So mm-hmm. he would basically take a, uh, uh, a fresh reed uh, of a Y shape just fresh cut, balance the the Y ends in the one hand and just walk around. And until the the heavy end basically just naturally dropped and wherever it dropped, that's where you dig. 
And he actually had a pretty good record, which is, I think, the reason why he kept doing it. Yeah. Which really strikes me as very strange because they were very, um, they were devout uh, Lutherans, or excuse me, Methodists. Mm. Folk magic, though. I mean, that was a big thing. So, um, But anyway, you... But yeah, so forcing Whitehead to drink wine and look into the scrying mirror broke the power that his master had placed on him to suppress his abilities. And then later on, we find Whitehead walk into another fairy circle and like shove mushrooms into his mouth. Right. And then completely become the superpower alchemist he's supposed to be. And part of the reason why the master suppressed his powers is the master probably saw that this man was really empathetic and sensitive and was probably naturally gifted at being susceptible or influenced vulnerable yeah but in like in a like an empath kind of way where he was a fast learner he was studious he was you know hitting the books and all that that like maybe the master was saying that he was too dangerous for his own good like why would the master to his raw potential too corruptible yeah okay like why, why? I guess you use the word suppress. Why would the master suppress is what I'm trying to ask. Well, I mean... It reminds me of X-Men Dark Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my thought was... That, okay, so my thought is one, is one of two things. So he was either suppressed because the master uh, was envious or jealous and didn't want his student to overcome him. Right. Or, or he was too corruptible. Yeah. So he didn't have enough of a history. Worldly. Yes, to to be able to once his power was fulfilled to not be able to use it for evil or good or yeah, whatever. Yeah, it seemed like he was too impressionable. He's too. I got the impression that he was innocent. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Really intelligent, willing to put in the work, but innocent. Yeah. Innocent in the in the ways of men, which maybe yeah. is why they sent him to war. Yeah, maybe he's like the perfect messenger just because he doesn't have his own agenda. Oh, geez. He's like yeah. The perfect leak. Yeah. So with the him looking into the scry mirror and the suppression, him coming out of the tent looking all demonic, which by the way is like it's one of the, the best. It's awesome. I've watched yeah. it six times. I'm not even joking. That scene is so mesmerizing. It's outstanding and it scared the ever loving shit out of me. You have probably 45 seconds, a long 45 seconds of him screaming and then all of a the sudden, there's this slow screaming unseen from inside a tent. So you don't you don't know what's going on except have... for the reaction of the people outside the tent. Exactly. Uh, and and then all of a sudden he bursts forth. The frame slows down. It has this haunting ambient music, and he looks like a stupefied fool, kind of drunkenly bouncing out of the tent like he's he's been lobotomized. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly unsettling but so I, like I couldn't stop watching it I've, with the rope I, with the rope tied around with him. the rope tied around his chest and I and I and you know with on a lead like he's mm-hmm. he's on like a harness or something but I, I watched it twice <laughs> yeah given your interpretation then he comes out looking kind of demonic kind of drunk uh, punch drunk or whatever so is that a time when he's kind of corrupted I think that he's been enchanted Okay. I, I I don't know that he's been corrupted yet because he seems to snap out of it at a certain point. Because he's it's like he's forced to find. Yeah. After lean. he's done with his his job, once he finds it, he's released. Yeah. Yeah, but, that's right. So he's he's tied up with the rope, and basically they have him running around this field looking for this supposed buried treasure that O'Neill is is confident exists in the field. Yeah. 
So yeah. he basically uses his body as a vessel mm-hmm. because he is, Whitehead is more pure than he is. Yes. Yep. In the moment where O'Neill corrupts Whitehead by offering him or by forcing wine on him and then he barfs up those stones, like that was really surprising that he was going to like barf up these things out of his mouth that they're like metal objects that have like very like ominous looking writings scratched in them. We never really get to see what the writings say, right? There's just enough to, there's just an indication of like a rough piece of metal or a piece of stone. So there is, uh, there is, there we is know what someone, they say. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't say anything in particular. It looks like Roman numerals. So let me, um, let me find it really quick. So the it reads I W D O R R M H, I W D O R R M H. Those are those are the runes or the symbols that are on okay. there. Okay. Well, I don't know what that means immediately. I don't either. <laughs> My education has failed me. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that's a really cool scene. And what I like about a field in England is that because of its minimalist environment, like every every element that's added to the mix has like magical capability. The post that the rope scene starts with is just a carved piece of wood in the middle of a field, but it feels important. Mm -hmm. And like when you see like the footsteps cross the boundary where they're stepping over that uh, string of mushrooms, Mm -hmm. like that seems important. Or like the bottle of wine, the pieces of paper with the writing on it. And all of a sudden there's these these pieces of metal falling out of this guy's mouth. Mm -hmm. Like the ability to take like really simplistic mundane objects and make them alive with like unseen, like magical forces, I think is a really like powerful strength of this movie well, to, to provide that sort of mystical energy out of super mundane objects. Absolutely. And there's, there's a, uh, the hedge in the very beginning that like Blackberry hedge where mm-hmm. the, um, his like commanders on one side and he's on the other. Right. That's also kind of the same effect we get with the, the mushroom circle, mm-hmm. uh, where, when they cross into the mushroom circle, um, time is different. Time is not linear. Yeah. And, and um, we can't be sure of what's happening and, and in what order. And so there is kind of this real soupy storyline that happens the moment the mushrooms are consumed. And especially when they're inside, that's when the wind kicks up. Right. That's when... Um, the wind is summoned. Yes. The wind is summoned. That's when he has his realization. That's when... Uh, he becomes Dark Phoenix. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but it's the same thing, right? <laughs> he taps into his mutant powers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He allows himself to be his own master. Jean Grey had to die, though, didn't she? She died for all of our sins. She was oh my, my least favorite character because I couldn't stand that she'd be like the most powerful and she'd be like, oh, my ankle. <laughs> Wait, what? Well, she just like every time she would use, I, I watched the cartoon a lot when I was a kid oh, okay. and she would like use her power and then she'd be like, oh. Oh, okay. And then yeah. someone, and then like the whole story would have to stop because someone's got to fucking go carry Jean out of the That's situation. True. It drove yeah. me crazy. Because her power is drained. I know, but like, but I get it. She's so powerful. <laughs> it corrupts her spine or whatever. But it's like, then they've got to go back and save her. And it's like, well, now this is just a dumb story again. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And she was chilling on planets and stuff. You know, just go fucking make up like a, a victory garden and chill out. I love, I love it too cool. because all all of the other students of the X Men were jealous of her because she was fucking Doctor X, Professor X, whatever. 
What? Really? No, they were. What? I but thought they're mines, man. Oh, mine, she was the only fucking. one. She was the only one who was rivaling him, if not surpassing him, with her power. Yeah, but like watching her faint every episode was just. That's true. Bad writing. Well, That's, Daisy. <laughs> That's fair. The one aspect of the story came up with that supposed thesis that you read that you told me about. It kind of rings true, but also kind of is debatable because there's the psychedelic mushrooms mm-hmm. and because there's the influence of magic, the idea of who's doing what. There's a certain point where the narrative structure falls apart and it becomes to be more of a symbolic narrative, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, after a friend is killed, after Jacob is killed, and then uh, Whitehead dons O'Neill's clothes and leaves the field. He dumps his weapon, he passes the hedgerow, and all of a sudden he sees all three of them again. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that the whole thing, that Whitehead was dead the entire time, and that this entire thing is just a spiritual battle between his spirit and the devil. Because I guess what I'm saying is like the story offers layers. I don't, I don't interpret it that, like in that kind of um, post-mortem mm-hmm. world way. I see it more as this symbolic flash of different aspects of his personality that he's absorbed. Like different parts of his soul that he's kind of taken as part of his journey now. The whitehead that walked back through those uh, hedges back into the battle is kind of how I interpreted it. He mm-hmm. was like walking back into battle, but he set all of his guns down before he walked back into the hedge. He walked through that and then saw these images. I saw it more as like a reflection of himself thinking back uh, to who he had become as evidenced by the hat that he'd put on, the cape, and then the two people by Well, him. you can also think of it as the the hero's journey again, or the tree of life. So in order to become the all-knowing alchemist, you have to travel to the deepest parts of yourself, shed, your, shed who you are, shed your identity, go into the darkness, and come back out. So it's almost like now that he's had this entire experience where it's like that crazy thing where he summoned the wind and I, I almost felt like it was now the storyline working backwards. So friend is back, friend has not been killed, but then Jacob yeah, gets killed. So it's, a- it's tough to, but, but my, my thought was when he's going back to the hedgerow and he's dropping all the weapons, but he's, he's not going back as whitehead. He's going back as the alchemist. That was like the completion of his hero's journey. Yes. And part of being a complete hero is absorbing that's the wrong word, but like taking upon the different personalities that the archetypes had that he wanted to take on, right? So like the innocence of the friend and just the pure joy of life, the strength of Jacob as the soldier. So he was taking on these parts that were incomplete in his personality and becoming a more holistic human. Mm, I see. Yeah. 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 That's, that was, that was my interpretation. I was reading one that was like, it was like, it was only him and like it would just like he was just all the fractionated portions of his personality and yeah. I was like listen I'm tired of this narrative I'm tired of this yeah, fucking yeah. there were more characters than just him in his I, mind I could I could see I could see that aspect though like the whole like soul conflict thing even though I would say that three quarters of the movie would actually kind of run counter to that because there was a few moments where during the battle with O'Neill at the very end where O'Neill the first time kills friend he falls down dead or whatever. And they're like, oh no, blah, 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 blah. And then some magical stuff happens. There's a pool of blood in yeah. Whitehead's hand. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, friend is back up again. So did he use magic, alchemy or whatever to resurrect him? Or was that just him? Sort Was that him sort of investing different parts of his soul? Mm-hmm. 
Good I, question. I guess what I'm saying is I, I can't completely discard the soul soul conflict narrative as part of this movie, which is kind of great because this movie has so much like spooky ooky, like hallucinatory, like weirdness in it that it allows for like competing alternate narratives. Yes. Yes, it does. I feel like I'm getting I'm getting I'm receiving revenge for the horseshit that I pulled for Harold and Maude, where I was like, he died in the beginning, bro. It's all just... <laughs> I was I was, re- I was re-listening to the Harold and Maude episode, and I think it's funny because it's like, you two were like coming up with like reasons why maybe it wasn't such a strong narrative or like different, different interpretations of the movie. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> a, bunch of, a bunch of tryhards. <laughs> I was like, I see where you're going, Brady. I like what you're doing there, Josh, but no. <laughs> we used to say this in the bar the moment you introduce alcohol into a situation even a little drop it changes the perception of the situation for that person consuming alcohol and it's the same with the movie the moment you introduce a psychotropic drug or or magic or magic exactly or magic it it like unravels the end of the bag so there's no there's no solid soft landing for the viewers you're kind of just always tumbling and you're and you're grasping for possible yeah comfortable answers to the end there's one thing that did not happen and i was grateful for it i th- i thought i saw it coming i thought it was about to happen and then it didn't happen and i'm so glad it didn't happen at the very beginning of the movie uh when whitehead is hiding from his commander out of nowhere suddenly from some unseen source the commander gets speared from behind he gets like he, he's he's mortally wounded he's not dead yet and then the soldier Cutler finishes him off, right? Mm-hmm. There's a moment at the very end of the movie after uh, Whitehead has defeated O'Neill and he's dumping his weapons behind the hedgerow. I thought for a second, he's going to run into the commander and spear him. And this is all going to be some Christopher Nolan Dude, like time loop We need to situation. leave Christopher Nolan I was gonna alone. Say, I was going to say, well, also Christopher Nolan's like, uh, this is your brain on drugs. This is your brain on Christopher Nolan. Scrambled <laughs> eggs. <laughs> Fucking... Our brain's been corrupted by this nonsense. <laughs> so anyway, it didn't happen, and I am all the more grateful for it. Time may not be a flat circle in this situation. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I think that there. I don't think that there's ever been given one solid answer as to what's really going on. There's a lot of interpretations on Reddit, mm. a lot of interpretations on film blogs. Uh, but there's no definitive answer about what's really going on. If you have the definitive answer, what up with the voicemail? Do not inundate our voicemail with a bunch of white dudes drunk (sighs) at like three in the morning yelling about what's going on in this movie. Leave us. Please do. 15 emails. Disregard Allison. Allison doesn't know what she's talking about. Allison doesn't know her audience. Outline the entire I know our audience. What the fuck are you talking about? We gotta keep the audience engaged.
So let's talk about uh, the backstory of this movie a little bit. So this was directed by Ben Wheatley, who did Down Terrace. He did Sightseers and he did Kill List. So this is his fourth movie. He did a bit of TV prior to this as well. And by the time this movie came out, he was a fairly infamous question mark director. I say that because I'm not British, um, but I do get the sense from reading a lot of IMDb and Letterboxd comments that demonstrate to me that he's a very polarizing director, which is strange to as me. A, as a viewer or as someone who's working for him? Viewer. Okay. People reviewing his movies and they have a very visceral response to him. I can see that. Saying he's vapid. Um, you know, he's trying to be Ingmar Bergman and he's just like, you know, painting by numbers. I can't think of many directors that kind of received this kind of response at his level, right? So he's like an up-and-comer. Sure, he's been in the industry for like 20 years. So up-and-comer is probably not the right word, but like lesser-known director who has a strong position on the types of movies he wants to make. Does you he- listen to him do interviews and like he clearly knows what he's doing. Even if you don't agree with what he's doing, like he has a strong direction. Now, I feel like that happens, that kind of criticism happens a lot when people feel like they are like lifting entire stylistic sections or choices based off of like previous directors or artists. Is that, does he have a history of doing something like that? Well, I guess the the comparison to Ingmar Bergman would say that he would, when I'm reading there, is that uh, he is attempting something that's a little bit more elevated, but isn't pulling it off? Is that what you would yeah. think the criticism is? Or a style without substance where it's like he's he's doing these moves visually or audibly, but not really without a lot of purpose. Okay. Or a lot of intent. Hmm. Which, obviously, the three of us disagree because we just said a few minutes ago that like everything in this isn't is with intent and is not wasted. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that the dialogue was extremely dense. I think that the yeah, the whole approach in this movie I think was seems very intentional. I I would agree with that. I I uh especially when it starts to get more psychedelic and there's more cinematography tricks that are going on, it made sense with the yeah. narrative. Yeah, and in the timing of it, it didn't like it didn't like run extra long and it didn't seem like it was there just to shock us. It seemed like mm-hmm. it was there to bring us into sort of like the rhythmic hallucination that was a part of like the rest of the movie. Yeah. Right? The next theory thesis that I had was, well, maybe he's just a pretentious asshole when he's uh, not behind the camera. So I went and looked up him as an interviewee and the dude is super thoughtful. He's respectful. He's funny. He's funny. Like, he did a masterclass for this whole movie hmm. uh, on the website of fieldinengland.com. Now it is unfortunately taken down, but thankfully there is an archive of the videos on Vimeo where he methodically goes through the process of making this movie. He paid somebody to help articulate the process of editing, the process of costuming, pros- prosthetics, Ugh. managing time. Sorry, but the costuming Costumes was so dope. fucking good. Right. And so this guy is generous enough to say... I made this movie for not that much um, money as my fourth movie, which he at this point was well known. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to walk you through every single part of my process, all the way down to scheduling. I mean, he talks about time yeah. management. So I started just crossing all these reasons why you would hate Ben Wheatley off my list. And I was just like, I don't, I legitimately don't get it. Usually, usually I can understand why somebody's like, I hate that guy. Like, for example, I love Terrence Malick. People are like, I fucking hate that director. I'm like, okay, I understand why. 
Like he has a certain aesthetic. He does a certain thing. It's, it's his thing. Not for you. Cool. You have a visceral reaction to it. But Ben Wheelie's career and his filmography is so varied. Hell, he's directing the new Tomb, Ra- Tomb Raider movie coming out in like mm-hmm. the next year mm-hmm. or two. He just seems to be passionate about everything. Right. That I just, I don't understand. Yeah, I, I would say that I didn't do as much research on you as you on Ben Wheatley and like why people maybe don't like him. The only thing that I came across was that for being like uh, what I thought was, you know, having seen High Rise and I started but didn't finish the Free Fire movie. And then this one, it's like he seems to have like a really strong artistic voice. But then in an interview, he talks about his five favorite movies and they are all, except for one, very vanilla his five favorite movies were Blade Runner, The Shining, Seven Samurai, Goodfellas, and Come and See. And other than Come and See, that all seemed like really kind of middle of the road. I mean, like excellent okay. choices from like masterful directors, but not exactly like weirdo stuff from like a, a, a yeah. peculiar artur. Yeah. You lumped in The Shining with vanilla options. I love The Shining. I'm not saying vanilla in terms of it being like a bland movie. I'm saying that it's one of those movies that's like everybody else's favorite movie. Because it's a great movie. Well, sure. But it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a mainstream. And, and what I'm picking up, what you're saying, Josh, is that often directors will be champions, champions of film. And being, by being champions of film, they're more studied than viewers of movies. And therefore, they'll usually come up with stuff that most people More esoteric films that yeah. like the average dude wouldn't know. So about. if he's really really stylistically doing these off the beat path things, you would have assumed that he would be championing lesser known. But they're also, they're also films that are so popular that if you, let's say you are average Joe and this, you know, you watch the shining or you watch, um, what was it? The thing? Uh, Seven Samurai, Blade Runner, Shining, uh, Goodfellas, and Come and See. But it's like, so if you're watching, if you're watching the shining or you're watching Goodfellas or something like that, those are, those are, popular doorways into other avenues mm-hmm. of more obscure film choices. And yeah. thank God they're there because I think that's opened the door for a lot of people. Well, yeah. So I challenging your statement. Okay. Mm. Yeah. The only, the only example that he offered that I thought was, okay, well that's, that's cool is uh, come and see because that's this extremely difficult movie. Yeah. Yes. Um, the rest of them all kind of seem like, you know, something that like a, a freshman like film major might say. I, I understand that. I understand that. Hit me up. He come at me, bro. <laughs> no, just I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because the interviews or the things that I saw of him, he was clearly referencing things that were lesser known. Mm-hmm. So he said that this movie, Field in England, was heavily influenced by Onibaba. He also talked about other films like uh, Into the Void, which we've mentioned multiple times. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, so he yeah. me- mentioned Into the Void where he, he was very... In, in admiration with how they demonstrated what drugs look like. You know, he's been cagey, but it was pretty clear to me, at least, that he's done psychedelics. And then he also brought up Dogville, the Lars von Trier movie, which is fantastic oh, with okay. Nicole Kidman, where it's all on a soundstage and they have like a blueprint. The The stage is a blueprint of people's homes. So they're all living within these white lines of a blueprint. It's weird, like, but they're all on a flat, stage. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Mm-mm. And so that, that movie... I've heard of Nicole Kidman. <laughs> <laughs> Brady, stop talking down to me. <laughs> the other one that he brought up was the fact that he made this movie because of Paul Verhoeven. So Paul Verhoeven got his <gasps> start... Paul Verhoeven got his start uh, doing military recruitment videos for the Dutch military. Yes. I didn't know this. 
You knew this? I, I remember. I remember. That seems really that. strange given yes. his personal history. I know, but that also makes sense with all the movies he's done. So Ben Wheatley was reading the book Verhoeven on Verhoeven. Obviously, his. <laughs> uh, it's very common, like Hell yeah. stylistic. You know, Bergman on Bergman is <laughs> so yeah. stupid. I know. I love it. <laughs> but he was reading about how Verhoeven did these uh, military recruitment videos. And he's like, holy shit. Like, if he's doing military recruitment th- things and it led to Starship Troopers, maybe I should figure this out. And that's what led him to researching the English Civil War. Mm-hmm. So even though Paul Verhoeven and Starship Troopers and Total Recall are big movies, like mm-hmm. his way of making this movie was a fairly esoteric way i see well it's it almost sounded like it got sidetracked so he he wanted to do a film about like uh, a battle reenactment <laughs> and and when talking yes, to those people like it somehow like developed into shamanistic drug use and how alchemists or how like just people of this time in the 17th century would like take mushrooms dehydrate them and ground them in a powder and blow in people's faces magic yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Abracadabra. Just ruin people. And I and and so I think it sounded like in the articles I was reading, he became more preoccupied with that story. Mm-hmm. Mm. And um, and that's how part of this developed. Okay. And he's got this obsession with this kind of drug uh shamanistic pagan folklore thing. And he showed that in Kill List, which was really his breakout. And then he, the trailer just dropped like a couple of days before this um, for his new movie, oh, yeah. In the Earth, which right. is basically people going out and studying. In the Earth. What are they studying? Like there's spores involved and they have to wear <sighs> gas masks like, like Last of Us, like spore zombies. Sounds right. Like I don't think that we're giving enough credit. Like people have been warning about like the pandemic for years, but sure. I don't think people are ready for the fact that like we're really going to be ruined, not by a virus, but by fucking mushrooms. Oh, great. <laughs> right. this is sweet. Like I, I feel sweet like dude. spores are just going to like, like someone, like the permafrost is going to go away. And then all of a sudden, like this just like, Arctic spores. And there's like, yeah, like an Arctic spore is going to take us over. Well, right when people were feeling hope for the vaccine, all of their hopes were dashed. Guys, Solid listen, six. it's 2021. Fuck your hopes. You know better. <laughs> Where your hopes go to die. Solid six. Subscribe. Sub fam. Earth's fucked. Get out. Peace. Deal with it. Here's your reality truth bomb. <laughs> Swallow that pill. Alison DeGrazio, 2021. Peace out. I have to watch the trailer for, was it, Into the Earth? Mm -hmm. Again, we watched it the other night, Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't remember the content of it. I just remember it seemed like, you know, fun and scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Other other things that kind of come to mind is that he intentionally had the script rewritten by his partner, Amy Jump. So he... He had written the script. She took a look at it and basically completely rewrote it. And he's like, fuck this. This isn't my screenplay anymore. It's hers. Hmm. So again, this seems like a a person who is very much a lover of movies, loves to collaborate with the same people over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dips in and out between making experimental stuff like this to Tomb Raider 2 or um, Rebecca, which was the only, it seems like the only misstep in his filmography. I don't want to see a remake of an Alfred Hitchcock movie that is oh, fucking fantastic. Yeah. Like Rebecca, I love that movie. I don't need to see a remake with Army Hammer. No thanks. Oh yeah. I'm good. Um, <laughs> fire up the barbecue, baby. <laughs> it's Army Hammer time. <laughs> <laughs> Take a big old bite out of that. <laughs> Come here, Rebecca. <laughs> Rebecca's a ghost, Josh. <laughs> Come here, you big ghost. <laughs> 
That goes is thick. <laughs> Big but juicy goose. I get what he's doing where he, he'll do like a passion project or that's something that's a little low, more low budge and then he'll do these big budge things yeah, to fund his his other projects. So that's that's my thesis of mm-hmm. like how his career is going. So if Tomb Raider 2 gives him $20 million, maybe he'll make his artistic yeah. masterpiece that's uh, filled in England on steroids. But again, I don't know. Maybe like the limitations of only having 300,000 pounds. I don't know. It was pretty perfect yeah yeah he, he did a really amazing job with it, the limitations that he had yeah yeah or perhaps that's just like the strength of the screenplay that he and amy jump came up with well, i mean like also credit where credit's due the actors blew it out of the park yeah. i mean all there were five of them yeah. in total yeah five five six something like that I, yeah. like the storylines for each of them aren't super well developed but them as their own characters living their own lives I, I had a blast watching them just do their thing. Um, yeah, definitely. Friend, especially. I, th- I thought Friend was he, all of his, he was a scene stealer. I thought, yeah, Friend was definitely a scene stealer because he had great one liners. I thought yeah. that Jacob brought a very necessary energy and he he brought enough chaos in the plot to kind of keep things moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought like that, a million venereal diseases. Yeah, his crazy <laughs> diseased dick. And we got a like nice shot of I did. Okay. My one thing <laughs> the prosthetic dicks in this movie. I'm I'm gonna say we're prosthetic dicks in this movie. I, I assume, but they were really generous with the length on their flaccid dicks. Oh yeah, like like when they were when he like held out like whatever stick to like take a real close look at Jacob's infected wang. Yeah, and and I was like, well, that was that was pretty generous. Yeah. <laughs> if this was directed by a lady and had ladies in the prosthetics department, you wouldn't have this generosity, would you? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe yeah. not. But like, just thinking from like a practical like story point, like if it's all in like you know shrunk dick mode, then you don't really get to see like the uh, the giant wart on the yeah, side like of the, it. Yeah, the huge problem. So he has mm. to have at least like a semi going on in order for you to be able to see the to see the stuff it's as true. a viewer. Josh does make an excellent. I'm point. just saying. Also, if we're still thinking about like why people don't like Ben Wheatley, like maybe he just has like terrible breath. Like maybe he's a close talker. <laughs> I don't know. Like. There's all kinds of things that put people off, like without really knowing anyone personally. All of the interviews I read were like, he's a genius and I love him and I trust him completely. So like I was reading this interview with uh, Elizabeth Moths, who was on uh, High Rise yep. and she had nothing but nice things to say about Ben Willie. Yeah. Um, so I don't know about this whole film nerd anger dude who doesn't like Ben Wheatley because... Uh, as far as I can tell, he seems like an all right fella. We also, we've been doing this long enough where I feel like the between the three of us, we get a pretty good impression on the, um, even if it's not stated directly, uh, the reputation of a director. So I not once came across anything that was disparaging of his character. Yeah. I just think that maybe, um, and I know I'm guilty of this too, where I, I get exhausted by a, a particular style. Yeah. In filmmaking. And so it makes me kind of grumpy towards that director or whatever. Yeah. But Wes Anderson. Um, right. And but, that's a, that's a through line through all of his movies. And yeah. I guess I'm suggesting that Ben, Ben Wheatley doesn't have a through line like that. I feel like he attempts to bring whatever style the movie uh, expects or, you know, needs. Yeah. You know how we, 
uh, I was defending Army Hammer, and then it turns out we were wrong about Army, or I was wrong about Army Hammer. And uh, <laughs> we can we, say we. Well, no, it was me. It was me. It was just all you like arguing with me. So I was wrong about Army Hammer, but I had this image like next week we're gonna get a like a phone call or a tweet or a message on Instagram or something. Like, no, no, Ben Wheatley's terrible. And then it was just gonna be a picture of him like chewing on a thigh bone with like Army <laughs> Hammer on the other end of the thigh bone. <laughs> like they're both like end to end, like nibbling on someone's leg. That makes sense. I mean, he's worked with Army Hammer at least once, if not twice. They're both cannibals. Yeah, he worked with him on Free Fire and (laughs) Secret Cannibals. Crypto cannibalism. That's good. I'll have to think about that one. Uh, There's a scene where, um, for the most part, the weapons used were flintlock pistols. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what O'Neill has, and that's what the soldier uh, Cutler has. But then, out of nowhere... Whitehead like levels a matchlock musket rifle. Holy shit! At O'Neill, oh, yeah. it basically almost oh, takes yeah. his foot off completely. It was, oh, I'm it was so turned so on good. right now. It's, it was such a good scene. So awesome. And I was like thinking about that. It's like, well, is that like a blunderbuss or like what's going on there? And I looked it up, and no, no, it's just it's a rifle, but the caliber of the bullets that uh, the old matchlock muskets shot was jai fucking gigantic. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you play video games, so you I know do. about these things where. Yeah. Like uh, in in the world of guns, like a fifty caliber bullet is like a huge bullet. Mm-hmm. Like that's that'll like punch a hole through a tank. Like yep. it's a massive bullet. The size of the ball that the and I'm reading the name here. It's called an arquebus musket. Back in the day of the English Civil War, would have shot as a sixty six caliber bullet. <laughs> so oh it's God. it's five eighths of an inch. It's massive. It's a fucking like golf ball that they're <laughs> shooting. So yeah, it would have like taken his foot right the fuck off. Yeah, that's some good gore. Oh, it was oh, wonderful. Yeah. Oh, like yeah. toppling good, over. And, good noises too. Yeah. You know, like like bamboo snapping. Yeah, oh, celery yeah. snapping. Yeah, oh, it was great. Yes. It was great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that escalated quickly uh, between that and then the two scenes of heads getting blown off. One oh, out the back, one out the his front. face. Yeah. Oh man, the one out, the one from the back to the front was, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like, there's like, like, like basically his whole like, maxillary region just got like blown off mm. just like and like his forehead just, just yeah. I was like oh <laughs> <laughs> the scene where uh, Whitehead summons like the, the like jet force wind like that had to be a fun day on set because yeah. it wasn't just like a breeze it wasn't like special effects like they brought in like a jet engine or something because like the wind is just like <laughs> ripping around I actually love what they did with the audio right there where it's like it's obviously yeah. so noisy and so loud but then they had voiceovers speaking very calmly right yeah fully um, yeah, they did some voiceover yes yeah and I, loved I, it. I I thought that was very clever because as someone who's done innumerable times of psychedelic play um, there are times where it's like the auditory situation doesn't match up really well. Mm. And so your voice sounds very, very loud or everything sounds like it's at the same pitch. I remember being at concerts, like incredibly loud concerts and it's like everyone's voice around me, my voice, the music, the birds, the wind, all were at the same decimal level. Mm-hmm. And it's a really, really confusing Situation. I loved how they incorporated that feeling into it. It's like, yes, it's absolute chaos, but also they're just, there's no screaming. They're just speaking. Yeah. Also in terms of special effects, kind of like what you're talking about there. And I know this, this connects way back to when we were talking about story is the big black ball in the sky that yeah. like mm-hmm. seems to be made of smoke. Do we know what he's looking at? Like, what does that represent in either the movie or... What, is, what does he say? He warns O'Neill... 
of the impending doom of whatever he believes this giant black ball to be. Well, I think the black orb could just be the remnants of the fear of looking into the scrying mirror. Oh, cooking. Okay. So the All black right. the black ball is his subconscious or whatever, whatever is um, as the as the diviner. Maybe we're not seeing what he's seeing and he's looking into this blackness and he is getting a vision and a message. And because of the mushrooms also put into his system, we have no idea what is getting transferred and transmuted to him. Right. So, And if he's this vessel that's being turned into something that's more idealized, then wouldn't that subconscious be some sort of manifestation of a god or some exactly, Exactly. Being? Yeah. Yeah. We just answered your motherfucking question. Yeah, dude, I like my head spinning. <laughs> Next. Next. Throw it out, bitch. <laughs> As Ariad Grandis says, thank you, Next. Pete Davidson, suck a dick with your mental illness. <laughs> what the fuck? Bitch. What? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, Pete da- Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't care. Thank you, comma. Next. So if you give yourself a bruise <laughs> from those headphones. Okay. All right. Uh, I absolutely love this movie right away. There were so many scenes where I felt truly mesmerized by the cinematography, the writing, and the performances of the actors. The film being written in 17th century English was also incredibly impressive, though there are some flubs in the dialogue as some of the terms were not technically in circulation at the time. But fuck it. It's still a major achievement to the writer, director and actors. Wheatley, Jump and Rose created a mind bending spectacle of a film. The overlapping visuals flashing between scenes and the overlay of Jim Williams musical score created a wonderful tension that I was on the edge of my seat and loving the entire time. So, guys, do yourself a favor and take time to watch the movie. If you've already seen it, rewatch it. It's a spectacular psychological horror, and I highly recommend it. I'm giving it a big titty tin. Wow. I really liked it. All right. So most peculiar films that walk away from straightforward storytelling into a more symbolic vocabulary, uh, when I talk to my friends about them, they require some kind of warning or preemptive explanation you can't just like recommend to your buddy that they watch like super weird movies without giving like a little taste of like what it is that they're going mm-hmm. to expect. Having said that, I'm unafraid to recommend this movie to anyone. Like I would, there's, I don't feel the need to kind of like apologize for or preempt or explain anything. I would recommend this to my mom. Like it's, wow. it is a weird movie that speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. The in medias race beginning sets up an environment that instantly feels lived in like you don't really question it too much the dialogue is dense and sometimes befuddling but it's a juicy assortment of shakespearean prose ribald swearing and garbage humor it's grimy it's gritty and sometimes nasty wheatley uses subversive instincts ribald storytelling ben wheatley is basically a genius and he doesn't care why one iota of anyone's opinion 
A field in England is a historic genre melter that readily mixes drama, horror, and comedy, shivering with fear and discomfort. Mm. Mm. Uh, I am at a near-perfect nine. Nice. Mm. Well, I'm glad you trust your mom. I also recommend you know it what, to I my might, mom. <laughs> I might actually have to give some explanation to my mom <laughs> just because of the wieners. It's fine. I would not recommend this to everybody personally. I uh, I don't know. We talked earlier about uh, the last couple episodes about viewers, and I feel like this is asking a lot of somebody who doesn't doesn't speak the language. I don't know. I think our viewers speak the language. There we go. I'm yes. sorry. Mm. I think mm. our listeners speak the language. Yes. Yeah. I think if you made it to this point, like you're down, dude. Yeah. Get in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good point. So yeah, I don't know if there's a name for this idea, um, but bear with me. There's there's something about the concept of looking inward, unlocking our understanding of the cosmos, and the inverse of exploring the cosmos leading to self-actualization. That theme is my fucking jam. It's probably my closest version of explaining what the word spirituality means. Regardless, a field in England tapped into that feeling. Whitehead's spiritual journey in the crucible of being held hostage is the spiritual anchor. And as such, I attached all the other characters' archetypes to him as a weight in clarifying how a person attuned to growth and change is impressionable and can be molded to other people's whims. Or they are able to take lessons learned from people they interact with to create a more holistic view of themselves. If you don't care for Whitehead or aren't really paying attention to his transformation, I don't really see this movie working for you. Cheers to everyone and everything involved with the script, cinematography, direction, acting, costumes, music, and concept. It all works in harmony, which begs the question, does it really matter how many days it took to shoot or how big the budget was? Not really. Sometimes that context matters to me, but that information never really factored into my opinion. It's a testament to how little fat there is in this movie. I saw it twice in a week and enjoyed it even more on the second go around. I have no idea. I have no idea why the fuck people have such a visceral response against Ben Wheatley. It's their loss. Mm. This is an eight. Thus concludes our alchemy series. That was fun. That was fun. It was fun, but I was stressed out because I didn't know anything about it. I feel like I still don't know that much about it. No, I have no idea what's going on with alchemy. I did have a story that we talked about. She keeps saying that, and yet she keeps answering all of these really exotic questions. When we were were driving, or maybe... No, no, that's the Emerald Tablets, Josh. Well, okay, so I was telling him about how I got started with... Uh, doing like natural magic mm. or, or Wicca witchcraft, things like that. And when I moved to Los Angeles, I joined um, Meetup and I met other Wiccans. Mm-hmm. And I met this woman named RL. And RL used to take me to covens around LA. But RL was, she was chaotic neutral maybe but she just like things things were too coincidental for her and so everything everything that like had a very reasonable explanation was magic which i had a really tough time with <laughs> so i was like well i was like well actually rl that that purely happened because you know it's like it's like because well because of like this this well-known fact in physics like so so i found i found her to like not be the best mentor but one day she calls me and she goes, Hey, Allison, um, uh, one of my friends dropped off this giant chest of stuff. I think you should come over and check it out. So I drove over there and I checked it out and it was a, it was someone's chest 
someone's magical workings that were like back from the 1970s. It was their notes. It was their book of shadows. It was all of their books that they studied. They had the the Kabbalah in there. They had um, a bunch of stuff on the tree of life, a bunch of stuff on hermetics and, st- and all mm-hmm. of it. And then like all of their notes, all of their ma- magical practicing, their like their mirror book, all these kinds of things. And she goes, uh, take what you want. Don't worry about it. And I was like, are you sure? Like, are you supposed to be watching this for somebody? She's like, no, 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 just take what you want. I was like, okay, great. So I took a few of these books, uh, took some like crystals that she had and like some candelabras, whatever. And uh, started doing some reading. Eventually I got, I just, I needed something more substantive. I needed, I needed a type of magic that had a little more, more gusto to it. So I started, I started doing more heavily ritualized occult magic mm-hmm. and this is why back in the previous episode i was like you can't like you can't just like do yeah, this yeah. fucking part-time and like expect everything to be chill because you can't <laughs> and um and basically started doing all this practice and interesting things were happening weird things were happening um uncomfortable shadowy things were happening uh maybe a few months later i did ayahuasca and i when I came out of the ayahuasca, I had this overwhelming vision that all of these things I had taken out of this person's chest, I needed to purge immediately. The, the literal moment I was able or sober enough to drive after doing ayahuasca, I came from the Bay Area and sped back down to Los Angeles, collected all of these things and brought them to a local occult bookstore that I had been going to. And, uh, and the cow's like, oh, cool. Like we do buy, sell, trade and, you know, you can get store credit for these. And I, <laughs> I was still like yeah. unlocked, if you will. But mm-hmm. I, I was like, I was like, no, no, these are yours now. And, mm-hmm. and she's like, excuse me. And I was like, these belong to the store. I don't want anything for these. <laughs> and she, and she got super weirded out. And I was like, cool. Peace out. <laughs> um, I'm gone. And I, and I, st- I stopped doing magic for I stopped practicing for years after mm. that. Now I just once in a while dabble in the uh, the fun, you know, the fun parts, the fun, the fun, you know, like naked lady under like the full moon parts, you know, yeah, you know, the yeah. old, the old, you know, sisterhood. We're letting our hair down. Yeah, <laughs> we're drinking wine to Diana. I hope. Thing. I hope this. Uh, I hope the series unlocked good good things and not uh, bad things. Like it's not like you now have this desire to bring all that shit back in your no, life. No, you know what? No, like I just, I, I had this desire because uh, like we have friends um, mm. here in Portland who are like heavily involved in this community that I had the discipline that I did not have in order to do this properly. And they have, you know, I find them, I find our conversations to be fascinating and interesting and uh, they, they just did it the right way. And I did it haphazardly. You were the 21 year old at Holocene with the vodka Red Bulls. Yep. Got it. Yeah. Like the adios <laughs> motherfuckers. That's like, I just got paid, bitch. I need six Long Island iced tea. Which, me- which means there's people talking about people like you who are like, they got in deep. Allison got in deep. Thought uh-huh. that she could handle her shit. Oh no. Yeah. So uh-huh. there's some podcast somewhere. No, somebody. it's just, it's just RL laughing to herself. Cause she gave me a bunch of cursed ass shit. <laughs> Because she, she can hear this conversation right now. That dumb bitch. She's thinking. <laughs> she's watching you from her scrying mirror as we speak. Yes. 
so. Well, if you start vomiting rune stones, we, we know the that spell is broken. Evil. My eyes turn black and I'm able to like find water everywhere we go. Also, just starts vomiting rocks and it's just like, save me. <laughs> Joshua, if we dig here. <laughs> cool, I'm out. <laughs> we'll find that they've been poisoning the water with mercury. Well, I'm getting wigged out, so I'm going to pick something drastically different next time. But I'm glad I uh, decided to take us on this detour. Thank you so much, the two of you, for helping to shepherd me along on this, this journey. Was a, this was a fun topic. Yes, I agree. <sighs> Josh. Yes. What are we doing next? Next time, I hope you're all ready for some shrinkage. <laughs> we are going to go with 1966 Fantastic Voyage and then 1987's Inner Space. All Yay! right. So expect me to get really pissed off talking about physics. Yay! Yay! <laughs> but also Cold War intrigue and Joe Dante because we love him yes. and buddy comedies. Yes. Yeah. Yes, 100%. So Excited. Fantastic Voyage is the French animated movie. No. No, that's You're Fantastic, Fantastic Planet. Fantastic Planet. Fantastic Voyage is the uh, Donald Pleasance, Raquel Welsh, Cold War thriller about a team of scientists that shrink down to nano levels <laughs> to perform surgery on the inside of a man's brain with a submarine. Yep. Excellent. This is That's great. Fantastic Voyage. Have you seen Fantastic Voyage? No. Mm. It's actually got some really interesting special effects from being made in 1966. This is yeah. wonderful. It's, it's a thrilling adventure story with a interesting science premise and a couple of twists along the way. Do we get to see Raquel Welsh's totally awesome waistline? Dun, dun, I believe we do. Dun, yeah, dun. I believe she has to like don like dun, the special dun, like dun, dun. like underwater or uh, like in the body like well, scuba it's suit. Like, it's like everyone else's scuba suit is like totally normal and hers just has a midriff <laughs> like showing. sexy. Yeah. yeah. It's like, what? Why? That wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. we're going to have to do a whole section on the history of DeLorean's for that for that one so why is that isn't Raquel the one that was married or dating Don DeLorean or what's his name DeLorean his name was Don DeLorean no what's his first name Uh, Jack Patrick DeLorean Gregory DeLorean (laughs) fuck Alan DeLorean am I thinking about a different Raquel you are are there more than one Raquel the DeLorean allegedly had an affair with actress Raquel Welsh in the mid 70s worth it fucking crushed it dude (laughs) Smashing that ass. He's the guy that invented the muscle car. Anyway. Uh, well, him, and, him and Iacocca, sort of. Cool. Well, I'm excited. Um, well, that's going to do it for us. Uh, so just as a reminder, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Solid 6 Podcast, on all those except for Instagram, which is Solid6.podcast. Leave us a voicemail at Solid6.net slash voicemail. Email us at podcast at Solid6.net. You know, I fucking want an email. Somebody write us a diatribe. I'm fucking tired of hearing your voices. I personally, given the next episode is Josh's, I want to hear Josh with his bar- sweet baritone mm. read an eloquence and elegance written email. I feel email. like you are opening up a can of worms here of just like of just like someone, someone who's got a katana sitting over their like their monitor just going like, well, actually, guys, if we're going to go back to like yes. 17th century civil war, exactly. Like, that's then what I want. We need to like really, really talk about the. So that's, that's what I want because all the little tone inflection. We didn't even get the dialogue right for the time. So imagine Josh 
interpreting that tone yeah. in his own way. Uh, envelope wasn't even a part of the dialect yet. <laughs> they may have not even had envelopes. <laughs> and on the most important social platform, follow us on Letterboxd. I am Brady Kimball. Josh Spaceman. Bruja Jones. Yeah, one day um, we'll get that endorsement from Letterboxd as well. So I'm on, a, I'm on an endorsement kick. One day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've Same. only emailed them three times. Have don't you? worry, Don't worry about it. Can yeah. we, what if we talk about them enough? You guys should start your own profile on Letterboxd to... It's too late. Write down it's, movies you want on your watch list and make a list. You can contribute to our lists of Man on Fire and Child Throwing. Mm-hmm. At solid6.net slash Man on Fire slash Child Throwing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. We did it. We did the whole thing. It's good to see you too. Yep. You made it back from the coast. It was nice. Wish we were still there. I can tell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we turned the lead of my feelings into the gold of my hopes and dreams. If thou be silent, I'll be glad. Thy moaning makes my heart sad. Baloo, my boy, thy mother's joy, thy father bred me great annoy. Baloo, 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 baloo. My sorrow to beguile, Baloo, my boy, thy mother's joy, thy father bred me great annoy. Baloo, my boy, lie still and sleep, it grieves me sore to hear thee weep. Twelve weary months have crept away since he.